Maranatha, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. You may be seated. So good to see you this morning. Let's continue praying together. Lord, as your people, we come to you again, thanking you for this day, thanking you for the rain outside. You, you did that. We thank you for it. We thank you for this gathering. We thank you for these people and all the various ways and situations that got them here in this room for this morning. All of your kindnesses that are evident in the smiles on our faces and the joy in our hearts. You have been good to us. You have been really good to us. We thank you. We praise you. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of glory and honor and all praise. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us into creatures who worship you. Make us into worshipers who please you, who worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray to that end, you would open your word to us today. That you would help us to see the glories of Christ. That you would help us to see the promises are precious and very great. And We pray that you would teach us, mold us, shape us into the people you want us to be. Lord, thank you for your word. What a privilege it is to study your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for speaking to us to calm our fears. Thank you for speaking to us to rise us out of the muck and mire of our despair and depravity. Lord, we need your help to do that, not just today, but for all of our days. We pray until Christ comes, you would sustain us. We thank you that you've promised to pursue us with your mercy. We need it so badly, even in this moment. So we yield to you. We submit ourselves to you. We humble ourselves before you. We are desperate people. We ask you for your help. We ask you for it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. One of the most widely published books in all of history is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress has been translated into over 200 languages, and it's never been out of print since 1678. I would encourage you to get a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and just plan on reading this classic book at least a few times for the rest of your life. Charles Spurgeon actually estimated that he read Pilgrim's Progress about a hundred times. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegorical story that represents the unique struggles and triumphs of the Christian life. Bunyan's aim was to capture something of the trials, something of the, the, the victory, really, that Christians, all Christians face uh, in, this, in this world as we persevere to the end. There's one particular scene in the book that is my favorite that I've found to be most helpful to my own growth in the faith. I'm sure my kids and my family already know the story I'm going to uh, share from it. Some of you have even heard me talk about this particular scene, so I hope this is familiar to you uh, as well. Christian, who's the main character, and his friend Hopeful are journeying together to the heavenly city. And they come upon a very difficult road. And so they decide to take an easier path than the one that they're supposed to stay on. An experience we're all familiar with, aren't we? Usually when we take the easier road, it doesn't work out the way we had hoped. And it actually cost us time and energy and effort rather than saving us. But 
That's what Christian and hopeful do. They try to save themselves a little bit of heartache and struggle, and they take an easier road. Well, as they realize that they're on the wrong path, they turn around and head back, but they're very tired from their travels. And so they find a little shelter along the way, and they rest, and they fall asleep in that little shelter. They're suddenly awakened by the owner of that land that they're trespassing on, and his name is Giant Despair. Giant Despair takes them captive and brings them to his doubting castle. And Christian and Hopeful are deprived of nourishment and light and hope. They are beaten and they are threatened. Despair is a cruel captor. And as they lay dying in Doubting Castle, their hearts are very troubled. This is it's actually one of the most gut-riching scenes in the entire book. They see nowhere out, no way out of their circumstances. They are so downcast in, in giant despair's doubting castle that they contemplate taking their own lives. And then all of a sudden, Christian realizes that he has a key in his coat pocket that could unlock any door in Doubting Castle. And the key is called promise. And with the key of promise, Christian opens the doors of Doubting Castle and runs with Hopeful back to the path that will lead them to the celestial city. It was the promises of God. It was the promises of God that Bunyan was teaching in that allegory that is the key out of despair and doubt, and discouragement, and depression. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, all of us know what Christian and Hopeful faced in that dungeon. We know what they experienced. Our hearts are often troubled and downcast by many things. We've all been captured at times by giant despair and thrown into doubting castle. Our hearts are discouraged by the direction of our country. Our hearts despair because of our finances and inflation and debt. Our hearts are disturbed by the rebellion of our kids or grandkids. Our hearts are downcast by the shallowness of our marriages. Our hearts are depressed by the monotony of our jobs. Our hearts are dejected by our own sin. Our hearts are in doubt in response to the continuous trials that we face. At times, it can feel like we permanently reside in Giant Despair's dungeon. I'll be honest with you, I visit Giant Despair so often that I need to just start getting my mail forwarded there. How do we battle the temptation to discouragement and anxiety and despair in the real world that we live in with all of the disappointments with all of the unrealized expectations, with all of the unrealized dreams and hopes that we have. I would submit to you that the answer is the same one that John Bunyan so vividly illustrated. We need to remember the promises of God. That's why we this summer have been pounding on the promises. I hope that you've gotten that key in your coat pocket so that when you need it, which is going to be regularly, You can pull the key out and unlock the door of Doubting Castle. 
God's promises are the key to freeing us from all that sinfully troubles our hearts in this world. And so, turn with me again to some of the promises in Scripture that we can meditate on. Turn with me to a a section of Scripture that is like a luscious garden of precious promises. Turn with me to John chapter 14. The Gospel of John chapter 14. Just so you know, this is my first Sunday preaching with my new Bible. That is large print. It's come, it's, come to that, it's come to that day, friends. Mark it down. Young people, enjoy it while you got it. John 14 is the beginning of what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. In John 13, Jesus partook of the Lord's Supper with His disciples. He washed their feet. It is the night before He would be betrayed. The night, before he, the night that He would be betrayed. The night before He would lay down His life for our sins. Judas had left the room to betray Jesus. And Jesus spent the final few hours of His earthly life gently instructing His disciples. When you understand what's going on in John 14-17, to this is one of the richest sections of Scripture. The wise Christian will study this, this section of Scripture, these chapters, regularly. So let's read and meditate on just the first few verses of the Upper Room Discourse. John chapter 14, verses 1-6. through 6. Listen to God's Word. Listen to King Jesus as He teaches us. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in John 14, Jesus' disciples are trapped in Doubting Castle under the influence of giant despair. Notice verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus spoke these words to them because the disciples' hearts were troubled. They were troubled because Jesus has been telling them of His fast approaching death. He will leave them and they cannot follow Him. They were troubled because He's been telling them that one of them will betray Him. And they were troubled because He just said that Peter would deny Him three times before the morning comes. And so what does Jesus do to comfort the troubled hearts, the troubled souls of His disciples? What does the Savior say to them? What does He do here? And the answer is very simple. Jesus speaks to them. He speaks to them. For 
three chapters here and then a fourth one in which is just a, a prayer to his father. For three or four chapters here, he speaks to them. How incredibly kind of the Savior. He doesn't leave his disciples to work it out on their own, to figure it out on their own. He gives them his word to guide them, to strengthen them, to encourage them. You see, the word of Christ is the cure for the troubled soul. The Savior's words are like medicine for the sick heart. But what does Jesus particularly say to them? What does He say to calm their troubled hearts? What key does He give them to free them from the locked doors of their despair? What Jesus does is absolutely amazing. You could, you could actually say this is kind of the, the underlying foundation of this whole Promises series. This is why we did this this summer. This is why I needed this for me. Because what Jesus does is amazing. Jesus gives them promises. Lots and lots of promises. I wish we had time just to walk through all of John 14 to 16 because this section is full of promises that Jesus gave his disciples that they might persevere in the faith. In fact, I counted 25 promises in these three chapters. Take some time to read through them yourself this afternoon and see how many you count. But let's look with the time we have at the first few promises that Jesus gives in verses 1 through 6. And let's not just read them. Let's not just say, yeah, I've heard those before. Let's actually believe these. Let's stand upon these that our troubled souls might find rest and peace in the words, in the promises of our Savior. So three promises I want to highlight for you in this section. Number one, Jesus will prepare a place for us. Jesus will prepare a place for us. So Jesus comforts the hearts of His disciples by telling them what He's going to do. Jesus isn't just abandoning them. Jesus is going away so that He might do something so that He might prepare a place for His people. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself. So what a most gracious and necessary errand of the Savior. He's going away so that He might prepare a place for His people. Like a a groom preparing a house for His new bride, Jesus promises to prepare a place for His prepared bride. Now, the most important thing to realize is that when Jesus is speaking of His going here, He's referring to His going through the cross and resurrection. When he says he's going away, he's leaving them, he's going through dying for their sins and rising victoriously from the grave. It is in and by and through his substitutionary death that Jesus can prepare a place for his people. It is only because he shed his own blood that he can prepare a place in the Father's house for us. Now in verse 2, the phrase the Father's house is clearly a reference to what we commonly call heaven, the place where God dwells. 
Now, listen, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. But heaven is described as the specific holy habitation of the triune God. It is where He presently dwells. Remember Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Our Father who's in heaven. Our Father who resides overall, who's on the throne. And so the Father's house is heaven. Now in Revelation 21, we learn that when Jesus returns, heaven, the place where God dwells, will come down to earth and be the eternal dwelling place of all the redeemed saints. The new heavens and the new earth will be a glorious kingdom that has been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so when Jesus speaks about heaven here in John 14, I think He has in mind both the current state of heaven, where the Father dwells, where believers enjoy face-to-face fellowship with Jesus, their souls do, but also I think Jesus has in mind the eternal state of heaven in the kingdom of God, where we will physically enjoy God's presence for all time. So I think he's talking about it both now and forever. So in verse 2, Jesus says that in the Father's house, in heaven, there are many rooms. Now, some have gotten a wrong idea about heaven from this verse. In 1611, the King James Version translated this word as mansion. Now, when we think of a mansion, when we think of someone calling something a mansion, we think of this abnormally large house, right? That's just sort of a big, fancy waste. 115 bedrooms and 95 bathrooms and two people live there. But in 1611, a mansion was not a large, extravagant house like we think of today. It was simply an average place for someone to live. In fact, the word here literally means dwelling place. In my Father's house, there are many places to live. There are many dwelling places. So, I know there are a lot of songs that speak about us all having our own mansions in heaven, but that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is saying there's one house with many rooms, many places to stay. The picture of heaven is of one large family all living in the same house together, not a bunch of people who have their own mansions separated from one another. And so Jesus' emphasis here is not on the extravagance of our estates in heaven, which I think is how this verse has been misused. Jesus isn't talking about the extravagance of where we will live for all eternity. No, the emphasis here is on the fact that there are plenty of room. There's plenty of room. For all of His people. Notice, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. There are many dwelling places. Because of what Jesus has done to reconcile us to the Father, there is room in the Father's house even for sinners like us. That's what Jesus is saying. John Newton once said something like this. He said, when I get to heaven, I will see three wonders there. First, I will see many people whom I did not expect to see. Second, I will miss many people who I expected to see there. And third, he said, the greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. So how kind of our Savior 
to promise us that He will prepare a place for us in His Father's house. In eternity, the Savior says, I will prepare a place for you. This is what Jesus is doing right now. This is what Jesus has been doing. What comfort should fill our hearts as we think about this promise of the Savior? He promised to do this for us. He volunteered this promise so that we would be encouraged, so that we would be strengthened, so that we wouldn't despair and be discouraged. Now, when Jesus says He's preparing a place for us, He's not talking about floating drywall or laying tile, installing plumbing. Jesus is talking about His ongoing work of interceding for us. He's prepared a place for us through the cross, and He continues to prepare a place for us by being our advocate before the Father. This is how Jesus prepares a place for His people, by being our mediator. And so, here's a great key to put in the pocket of your heart. Here's a great key. If you are believing in Jesus, Jesus is right now preparing a place for you in the Father's house. And Jesus is preparing eternity for you and for me if we believe in Him. He won't have to scramble to get it ready. He is preparing it even now. And if you have a place being prepared for you in eternity, friends, you don't have to have the richest or nicest stuff in this temporary life. Like If you have an eternal dwelling in the Father's house, it's okay to sacrifice comforts and earthly treasures in this life. And if He's preparing a place for you, my question for myself is, am I preparing myself for that place? If He's preparing a place for you, are you preparing yourself for that place? That is, are you laying up treasures in heaven? where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal? Are you setting your mind on things above where Christ is? Are you growing together with the saints who will be there in the Father's house with you? If the eternal place is being prepared by the eternal Savior, then let His eternal people prepare themselves for that eternal place. Friends, this will rescue you from the dungeon of depression and despair. Believe this promise. I mean, like, what else, what else can get you down in this life if you believe that your Savior is right now preparing you a place in the Father's house? This is a precious promise. But notice the second promise that Jesus gives. Jesus will come for us. Jesus will prepare a place for us. But secondly, Jesus will come for us. So this second promise, I think, is even better than the first one. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. So not only does Jesus promise to prepare a place for His people, but He promises to come again to get His people. Yes, the second coming of Jesus is a precious promise. 
Jesus will come in great power, in great glory. He will defeat his enemies, and he will set up his eternal kingdom. But the particular promise here in John 14, 3, is that Jesus will come for us. So it's not just that he will come, but it's that he will come to get us. That's the promise here. Notice carefully what Jesus is saying in verse 3. I will, not might, not could, not may, I will come again and I will take you. Where? Where will he take us? I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus will come, Jesus will take you, and Jesus will take you to Himself. Friends, a sweeter promise does not exist. Jesus promised that He would take me to be with Him to the place He has prepared for me to be with Him. And friends, there is no other place I would rather be. There's no other place I want to go. People these days have some crazy ideas about heaven and eternity that are based more on their imaginations than on God's Word. How many times have we heard someone say that they're looking forward to heaven based on something they hope is there? Some people are looking forward to that mansion by the lake that they've always wanted because they want to be away from everyone else. Some people long to eat at the all-you-can-eat Buffet of their favorite foods. Some people just want to play golf all day and not have to work. Some people can't wait to see loved ones who died before them. But when Jesus tells His disciples about the eternal state, He does not tell them what they will see. He does not tell them what they will eat. He does not tell them what they will do. He does not tell them about people they will be reunited with. When Jesus tells His disciples about eternal heaven, He tells them one thing with certainty. He tells them one thing with certainty. Heaven is being with Him. Heaven is being with Him. This is the first and last word on heaven. This is the most basic reality of heaven that we should look forward to. Heaven is where Jesus is. Heaven is where Jesus is. And that's not to say some of those other great kindnesses of God won't be there, but all of them will be enjoyed and will have meaning because of this, that heaven is being with Jesus. Eternity for the believer is described as being with Jesus. He will take us to Himself that we may be where He is. And the question you must ask yourself when you're confronted with this truth is, is that sufficient for you? Is that sufficient? Is Jesus Himself enough for you? Or do you have to have a lot of toys and leisure promised to you to be excited about eternity? Consider it in your own heart. Is Jesus emphasis on being with Him in heaven, is that exciting and thrilling to you? Or would this have more thrilled you if Jesus had said, when you get to heaven, you'll get to experience blank. And that's something you really, really, really wanted to do. Is this most exciting to you? That Jesus is the center and focus of all eternity and you get to be with 
Him. Jesus will come back in power and great glory and He will take us to Himself. Jesus doesn't send an angel or a messenger to run this errand on His behalf. Jesus Himself will come. Beloved, history is not at the mercy of the plans of politicians or lawmakers or terrorists. The reins of history are firmly in the hands of our Savior, who is the Lord of history. And when He comes again, He will bring us to Himself forever. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says this about the second coming of Christ. Listen to it as a promise. That's what it is. 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Paul says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Friends, no need to have a troubled heart. No need to visit giant despair. The Redeemer is coming to get you. And He will take you to be where He is. This promise should give substantial peace and joy to your hearts today. Okay, but someone could object here and say, can we really trust what Jesus says? I mean, what makes Jesus the authority on heaven, on eternity? Well, notice the last promise for us to consider. And it's this. Number three, Jesus is the sure way to the Father. Jesus is the sure way to the Father. And so after telling His disciples that He will prepare a place for them, He will personally come back for them, Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to come back and you know how to get there. Verse 5, Thomas sort of humbles himself. Thomas is one of the 12 disciples. And he admits that he doesn't even know where Jesus is going. So how in the world do they know how to get there? And Thomas's question prompts one of the most clear and amazing things Jesus ever said. Verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, of all the things we could say about verse 6, the one thing I want to say right now is this. Notice the narrow-mindedness of Jesus in this statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is incredibly intolerant of all other so-called ways. Friends, we cannot hear these words often enough in this culture. We are bombarded every day with pluralism that says, there are many paths to God. We are bombarded and assaulted by relativism, which says there are no absolute truths. But Jesus says He is the truth. He is the absolute truth. He is the way that is the only way to eternity with the Father. Church family, we must be willing to stand on Jesus' narrow-mindedness here. We must be willing to look people in the eye, our neighbors and co-workers and family members. We must be willing with great love in our hearts to look them in the eye and say with Jesus, there are not many paths to God. All religions are not the same. 
Everyone who dies does not go to heaven. If you don't trust in Jesus, you will go to hell. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There's one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, I know this statement in verse 6 is not technically a promise. It's a statement of fact by Jesus. But in the context of these other promises, think about what a precious promise this statement becomes for our future. If you are embracing Jesus as the only way, this is a promise that He is the correct way. That He's the right way. That you don't have to wonder whether if you took the Jesus path, if that one's going to fail you in the end. No, Jesus says, you've got the right way. We can be confident that He will be the right way to the Father. We can be confident that He will indeed bring us to the Father and He will do all these other things that He promises because this is true. Jesus will do what He's promised because He is the way, the truth, and the life. And as Jesus says, starting in verse 7 down through this, the rest of this passage, he is, fully, he is the fully divine Son of God. And He came to reveal the Father to us. Therefore, He can be trusted that He is the way to God because Jesus is God. This is a truth that, to, that would rescue us from our despair. This is a truth that would rescue us from our depression. Jesus is the sure way to the Father. He's the sure and only way to eternity with God. May we be able to say with the old hymn that we love to sing, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So what troubles your heart today? What troubles your heart today? Do you feel like giant despair has locked you into his doubting castle? There's a key called promise. There's a key. And it's the promises of God. Listen, if you're believing in Jesus today, Jesus will prepare a place for you. He said so. Jesus will return to take you to Himself. Jesus said so. Jesus is the sure way to the Father. Jesus said so. And of all, and of all the promises that He could give, He gives these precious and great promises to people like us who constantly question Him and doubt His goodness and kindness, who turn away from Him, who run away from His mercy like we talked about last week. And yet, He promises to people like us who deserve wrath and condemnation, He promises goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Beloved, these promises were purchased for us by the precious blood of our Savior. He laid down His life so that we could know these things are true. And so, Let's believe them. Let's use them to unlock the despair of this life. Let not your hearts be troubled because you have a great Savior who promises great things for His people. Let's trust Him now as we pray together. Lord, all glory 
be to you. All glory, honor, and praise be to you. You are so good and so kind. And we are so undeserving. We are truly doing better than we deserve. And not only right now are we doing better than we deserve, but for all eternity, that will be true of us. You've given us so much, so many good things to believe and trust in. Lord, help us to believe Your promises. Lord, I pray that from my own heart. I pray I would trust Your promises. I pray I would believe You. I would take You at Your Word and live life accordingly. And I pray that for my friends here today. God, I pray that You would help them to trust Your promises. And Lord, I pray for those that are here today who are not trusting You at all, who refuse to give You their lives, who are living for their own pleasure and joy. I pray that You would break their hearts Help them to see the glory of Jesus. Give them repentance and draw them to Yourself. Do that, Lord, right now for them. Thank You for Your promises. Help us to believe them. And we pray You'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen.